0: Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. So holding Donald Trump and his gang accountable is vital. But it is crucial that the Biden administration move forward at the same time on our progressive agenda. It would be a horrible miscarriage of justice if impeaching Donald Trump and bringing him to trial disrupts the work to repair all of the damage he did to the economy and to working people. That damage is bigger than just Trump, of course. We have generations of exploitation to undo. So we need to get started while the pain is so apparent and the political tide and will is running our way. Here are three things for progressives to fight for right now as Biden takes office. Number one, let's expand stimulus, the stimulus, and lock it in for a minimum of two years. Number two, let's erase student loan debt. Just totally erase it. And number three, let's extend the moratorium on evictions, at least through all of 2021, combined with a plan for the government to take over past rents and mortgage payments. It won't work if you just do one. These, are, these, are three, these three things are key to helping working people through this crisis. And as progressives, one thing that we can do is keep repeating that this is a crisis. The deepest economic downturn since the de- Depression A downturn that has fallen far harder on low-wage workers and people of color and immigrants. A downturn that will make the economic and racial inequities of our country far worse unless we intervene now and start making things better. These three measures will not be nearly enough, of course, but they are an immediate start. We have winded our backs with all three of these things already. And they are measures that are already finding support behind our progressive ranks. And frankly, even some of our neoliberal ranks, which means we can get them done quickly and well. And speed is important right now because people are struggling to stay afloat, we know this. With all the horrors in our face right now, it is easy to lose sight. And I think the corporate media have lost sight in some ways of how desperate life has become for so many of us, for so many Americans, for so many immigrants. People are out of work, months behind on rent, dependent on charity to feed their families. There are food lines around the country that go miles long. Every day that this goes on inflicts long-term damage on the future. The three steps of stimulus, debt relief and rent relief, will ease the immediate crisis for many people and create a space for the larger changes this country might have, like passing Medicare for all. Now, as progressives, we should not shrink from the price tag, of course. This will cost a lot of money. The country will run up a debt. But this is the time to spend, right? As expensive as this will be in dollars, we as progressives must make sure, must make the case that the cost of not doing this will be far, far, far higher. The physical cost and the actual cost on people. The money cost and the actual cost on humans, You don't have to be Stephanie Calton and the MMT theorists to see that it is a pretty good idea to borrow money now and at interest rates right now near zero to prevent a dystopian America of underpaid and unemployed workers, unbridgeable racial racial schisms, and rich people living behind gates and walls. Well, the majority of the country goes hungry. If it helps, think of the American people as, I don't know, a company, maybe a bank or an airline. America bailed out airlines and banks and automakers and others. This is the bailout for American working people who, by the way, all those companies, right, they depend on, huh? We really are at a fork in the road, and we cannot let the necessary job of holding Trump to account also distract us from the work ahead. These three steps can be enacted in the first few weeks of the Biden administration, Stimulus talks are already underway. We are told Senator Chuck Schumer is already telling the Biden people to raise their sights on how much should be spent. That's Chuck Schumer, Chuck Banker Schumer, which must mean that his friends on Wall Street and the big banks accept that this is needed. It's a big deal. The next stimulus bill must make clear that it will take us several years to climb out of this pit. That means supplemental unemployment insurance, at least until unemployment is back near where it was before the pandemic, which may well be into 2022 or 2023 or worse if we don't do anything. It also means we have to think bigger than just whether the next stimulus check is $600 or $2,000. What a freaking insult that is to people. We need to commit to regular Monthly stimulus checks into 2022, at least. I am fine with the 75 dollars and $95,000 caps, and I hope as the year goes on, more and more Americans get back to work and start to earn their way out of their stimulus checks. That is a good thing. But remember, there are millions of low wage Americans who never make more than $75,000, and we need to be thinking about them. Then there is the stu- student loan relief. This debt is a noose around the necks of millions of Americans, not just millennials, millions of Americans. Millions of Americans who didn't graduate because the debt was so high. So they didn't even get the degree or they didn't get the jobs that came with the degree as they were promised. It has been holding their lives back even way, way, way before the pandemic. We know this. It ruins their credit and holds them back from investing in their futures, which by the way, is America's future, right? So let's wipe that slate clean. The banks will surely take a haircut, as they say on Wall Street, but I am actually okay with some reimbursement from the government to the banks to cover part of the losses. And then let's have a major plan for dealing with both access to education and its costs. So we never sink back into a hole like this. The third is rent and mortgage relief. There are millions of lower income Americans who have not paid their rent in months. That also includes the middle class. That includes small business people who have lost their businesses or may because they can't pay for their store or factory space. Right now, this may be the most frightening part of the economic crash and the piece that must be dealt with urgently. People have lost their jobs. People have lost their health care that came with their jobs. People can no longer afford to pay their mortgages or their rent. First, because all that is protecting millions of Americans from evictions are the federal and local moratoriums which must be continued. But that really only pushes the crisis up the chain to the landlords. Some landlords are really just small business people themselves who now are in danger of collapse. Others are mega real estate companies, like the ones hmm, I've done battle with in New York City. So I have to grit my teeth as I say this, but they can and should have a seat at the table as we sort this out, hear me out. A real estate bailout has to start with tenants, not real estate giants. But we need a plan that cleans the slate of back rents and back debts and lets all of us, debtors, banks, realtors, tenants, start 2022 fresh. No, 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 hear me out for a second because they have an interest in keeping the rental market going. If rental companies, if developers see that people cannot afford to move into apartments or move into new homes, that affects their bottom line. So if the uh, corporate Democrats don't want to hear us tenants, us lowly tenants, then maybe they'll listen to their big donors in the real estate industry who also have a stake in this. Maybe there are weird, strange bedfellow allies in this, which of course leads to my bigger point. The pandemic will end sooner rather than later if Biden is able to slap the dysfunctional vaccine effort to attention and create mandatory mask uh, enactment. Let's just September, okay, as the month that we can resume whatever normal will look like af- after this. The vaccine can tamp down the health crisis, but we need sustained stimulus, student debt relief, and rent relief to clear the economic rubble and get us all back to school and back to work and onward to rebuilding a country better than the one that's crumbled around us way before this pandemic. That is what is needed. We have a lot more to discuss in coming weeks. We'll be doing special coverage on Inauguration Day, so definitely set set your calendars for that. And uh, if you don't know already, we are in the midst of reading our first book for our TNS Book Club. It is Thomas Paine and the Promise of America by Harvey K., he has signed the books for our TNS Book Club members. We are in the middle of it right now. You can see my bookmark, my notes everywhere. Uh, we have our first interview up already, but we're doing another interview with the TNS Book Club questions coming in. If you are a TNS Book Club member, email us, email us your questions about the book at Show at gmail.com. Uh, definitely go check that out if you want to join patreon.com slash the nomi key show we have a wonderful show today chris rab is here and so is a, is a run chowdery who actually recommended our second book club which we'll get to but right after this break we're going to talk with david moore we're going to walk through one of my obsessions the democratic party democratic party has just released the rules for electing a new chair oh wait by the way it just happened just like that so he is going to talk about it there was no election uh it just happened stay tuned. We'll, we'll drop the the info on that. Uh, Stick around, click that subscribe button, smash that like button. You know, the jam, you know, the jam, we got to do this. We got to get the conversation going. Uh, We will be right back after the break. All right, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. So I want to give you guys a little bit of a background on uh, DNC, how the DNC functions before we get to David Moore. Uh, today, we, we we were going to talk about this with David, uh, how they're rushing through the DNC chair's uh, appointment slash election. We were going to talk about this with David regardless, because he's been covering it over the last few years. But uh, while we were preparing, there was some breaking news that former South Carolina chair jamie harrison uh, is going to be the lead of the dnc national committee the democratic national committee the dnc and that is an appointment by biden jamie harrison of course ran for senate against lindsey graham uh just this this last cycle i personally think it's a weird decision for jamie harrison um you know it's not a loved position. People always have complaints with the DNC chair, no matter who it is, even if it was somebody who instituted a 50 state strategy. I feel like he could have gone bolder, maybe got an appointment to the administration. Uh, he had a huge campaign. They raised a lot of money. It really uh, he came out looking like a hero out of that campaign. But uh, Jamie Harrison you know, was a former state party chair in South Carolina, not notoriously known for being a, a, a party that has a, a visionary uh, Democratic Party. He's a nice guy. When I was covering the DNC chair race, he did run for DNC chair in 2017, which is in February. If you recall, um, that was a that was a, a packed field, including Pete Buttigieg. I mean, what's so funny about this, actually, is Pete Buttigieg came out with an appointment <laughs> to the, the administration, but Jamie Harrison got DNC chair and I, you know, knowing both of those people, I would say I, I expected Jamie Harrison to get an appointment to the administration. I just think he has more of the, um, I don't know. They just, I just think that it's a smarter pick frankly. Um, but you know, it's, it's strange because people are always complaining about the DNC rightfully so, uh, and the leadership. And even when the DNC was led by more democratic lowercase D chairs, who instituted real investment in state parties and local parties and trainings, uh, working with unions, you know, they they um, still got complaints, people still complained about them. So anyways, uh, let me just do a little bit of background on, on Jamie Harrison and kind of how the DNC functions. So 2017, there was an election and the reason why there was an election was because we did not win the presidency, meaning the Democrats didn't. When the Democrats win the presidency, traditionally, uh, they appoint somebody. And really, in the past, even the elections for DNC chair have not been anything like it was in 2017. And that was a result of, of course, the Clinton-Bernie uh, primary, but also the fact that Hillary Clinton shockingly lost against Donald Trump. And folks who supported Clinton suddenly felt as if uh, you know, their entire worldview had shifted. Or, uh, in many cases, there were a lot of DNC members, voting members, who had criticisms of how the campaign was running or how the DNC was being run and just held it to themselves because they were loyal Democrats who wanted to support the nominee or or even earlier in the primary uh, just support Hillary for an array of reasons, whether it was old relationships, because the Clintons have been around forever, or they were uh, afraid of challenging the status quo because, you know, there was a, a belief that the Clintons were vindictive and could get back you know, I don't think that's a secret that they would punish folks for not falling in line um, or they just wanted a woman president. You know, there or, or they like the neoliberal ideology or the big one. They actually had a financial interest or stake in in the Clinton uh, presidency. But I think for the folks who who came out and supporting Keith Ellison, I mean, the, the the race was very tight in 2017. Um Dorsey, uh, we don't need to have that on screen anymore. It's okay. The 2017 race was extremely tight. It it came down to two ballots. There were a lot of people in the race. They started to bow out last minute and, you know, fall in line behind uh, Tom Perez seemed very similar to actually the way that the Joe Biden, uh, everyone started endorsing Joe Biden in the primary Uh, Keith Ellison definitely had the movement behind him. He had unions behind him. He had more democratically elected DNC members behind him as opposed to appointed DNC members. There are a lot of folks who are appointed to the DNC and sit on important committees. Most of the important committees are just people who never ran for DNC but were appointed. And a lot of those people have um, conflicts of interest, which is why on the Unity Reform Commission, uh, the conflicts of interest – situation went really far, I, I I was personally targeted, other folks on the commission were targeted because we wanted to ban conflicts of interest. People who were appointed that had business with the DNC, had business with major presidential candidates, whether they're lobbyists, consultants, um, they should not have, ha, have a vote in the DNC. And they should also not be appointed to important oversight committees like the rules committee. Whereas you have other members, the DNC that have run from their communities to be DNC members, traditionally they're more progressive, or they're a little bit more. Um, they believe in due diligence. They le- believe in and having a transparent structure. And a lot of DNC members, you know, they they weren't aware of a lot of these reasons, uh, these these problems until the 2016 primary, and it was all it all unveiled before them. Um, so the DNC chair's discussion was hardy. Uh, Ray Buckley, who's a chair out of New Hampshire, I mean, he would have been a great DNC chair. He was the first to say, you know, he's been sitting on the executive committee or he was sitting on the executive committee for several years and he never saw the budget of the Democratic Party. That's like if, you know, say a big bank has a board and the board never saw the budget. That's just not normal. This is a corporation, and corporations have to be run that way, whether you're a party or not. So, you know, he was very concerned with where all the money that was being raised was going. Um, Most of that is disclosed, and that's why uh, during the chairs, during the Unity Reform Commission, which came later, I talked about a crew of consultants getting most of the money because it was all disclosed, because we have laws in this country, financial laws. so, you know, the DNC chairs race was heated. Uh, Jamie Harrison, I will say, you know, he is he's a nice guy. I enjoyed my interviews with him and he was honest, but I but I wasn't I didn't agree with his answers. Uh, I asked him things like, should lobbyists be allowed to sit in the DNC? And unlike other folks who are running for DNC chair who reverse their positions later, like Pete Buttigieg or, um or just kind of like danced around the subject and didn't deal with it head on, he said, yeah, we need the money. We should have lobbyists in the DNC. So to me, that is a big signal as to what uh, kind of DNC will potentially, how it'll be run. And it concerns me because I believe the only way out of this disaster is to have a DNC that's in alignment with labor, the way it used to be, and have a DNC that's not just inve- investing in every single state, but is investing in every single community. I mean, we see what happened in Georgia when I believe the DNC wrote off Georgia years ago, but people in Georgia were like, no, 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 no. There are more Democrats, the same thing in Arizona. There are more Democrats than you think. And so folks started to self-organize, but that shouldn't, the burden shouldn't be put on community members to do that work. What are people donating to the democratic party for? For ads, you have to do the work in between the cycles. You have to register voters in between the cycles. You have to look at the data and say, where can we win? Where can we recruit candidates at the local level to fight these big battles? Where can we work with unions, especially in, in, in red states, um, to, to fight for our candidates, but also these ballot measures? I mean, it's, it's absolutely amazing that in Florida, they were able to pass a $15 minimum wage, but they couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't win the presidency. Or they couldn't, you know, support Joe Biden, or they couldn't support other Democrats. You know, it's 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 shocking to me that in red states across this country, we have had ballot initiatives that are left leaning, union aligned, and union backed and union organized. But in those same states, we lose Democratic seats. And to me, uh, it comes down to Democrats not investing the. the capital D Democrats not investing locally. And Tom Perez has received a lot of criticism from the outside, but also from the inside at the DNC, because, you know, he claimed he was going to have this 50 state strategy, but instead he allocated like pennies, pennies to some of these parties to revive themselves. Uh, I'm going to be right back with David Moore, but I just wanted to give you my, my overview before we go into that interview. To the Nomi Keys Show, our dear friend David Moore is back. He's the co-founder of sludge. Go check out sludge uh, dot com and he's a member of the Brick House cooperative. He did a piece <laughs> which which is so timely because we were going to book him and then the news broke, but he did a piece recently uh, titled on, on, he did, excuse me he did a piece titled DNC finally releases rules for next week's chair election and as somebody who has personally uh, covered the DNC extensively. I was like, wait, hang on. That didn't come out. (laughs) And I immediately texted a bunch of DNC members and they were like, we just learned. We just learned what's going to happen. And I think um, before we get to this, just so folks know, that's the norm. The DNC will say, we're having an important meeting of blah, 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 rules committee. Uh, Maybe they have a date. Maybe they don't. They announced the date last minute. And then they'll Put out a press release like two days before the meeting in some city across the country, and they expect the, you know, and that's the press's warning. And then when they, if they do get there, if they work for a well funded press, they're escorted to a basement in a hotel in which there's no Wi Fi. (laughs) Which is very hard for the press. So um, it simultaneously, things like this happen very abruptly. They're not in the books in advance uh, because once again, the corporation of the DNC is not a transparent and open and democratic lowercase d institution. So, David, how did you learn about this uh, before we get to the choice, which wasn't a secret?
1: Uh, great. So thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. So of course, this morning, um, the news came out that, that President-elect Biden and Vice President Harris will be putting forward Jamie Harrison as their nominee for chair. But I'd, first, I'd like to flash back to um, over a week ago, to um, to to well, to, to, to this week, Monday, when many of the DNC members who are responsible for this election were still in the dark about how it was going to happen, when it was going to happen, and even who was running. In other words, uh, DNC members from all different types of backgrounds had been asking the DNC staff and the Biden-Harris campaign, which is sort of transitioning into the White House in various roles, what um, was going to occur, how the election was going to be conducted, especially given the pandemic and given that they, couldn't, uh, beho- that they wouldn't be able to be uh, all, all gathered in person in D.C. like they normally would to elect a, a new chairperson, and they had not heard back uh, anything. In addition, there's another group of pro-reform DNC uh, members who we had covered in a story um, last month. And this group of uh, over two dozen and now over three dozen pro-reform DNC members had sent a letter to the DNC to try to start a discussion about these, the things that you just raised in your, in your very apt introduction about the party process and basic transparency measures of the kind that you would find in any other organization that are completely lacking in the DNC and that have been in fact voted down by various DNC bodies. And those three dozen, um, right. now 37 signer DNC members have not received any acknowledgement or response to their letter seeking to uh, discuss reforms to the party.
0: And the DNC is, is currently still led by uh, secretary or uh, DNC chair, uh, Tom Perez, former secretary of labor. Um, you know, when, when I was covering the chairs race and into the unity reform commission, Uh, you know, this is, this is me editorializing, but I will, I will be very (laughs) uh, forceful in this. Tom Perez is not known for being the most responsive person, chair, candidate, whatever. I had interviewed every single chair candidate several times, including Jamie Harrison, who had no problem being interviewed. and we could not get an interview with Tom Perez. We had to literally chase him down on escalator, <laughs> And mm-hmm. then finally we got it. Mm-hmm. And it was because we had the cameras live going that he was shamed into doing this very brief interview. Um, and then that, that kind of spilled over into the DNC. And I would hear from DNC members how he just wasn't responsive. He would uh, he was belittling, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it was a, like, he didn't want to be there. Um, he'd give these angry speeches in which the crowd would start to dis- dissipate at the DNC. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 I'm not surprised, but that he didn't respond to the reformers. Um, and, and I, you know, and, and, the reform, I think there are more reformers in there. That's just, you know, in the middle of COVID in the middle of the presidential primary, in the middle of a lot of crises, how many people could sign on. But what, what, what I'm really like dying to know is, was this an actual election? Because prior to this, if the Democrats won, mm-hmm. the democratic president elect got to just pick unilaterally pick who the DNC chair was. And I don't know any of the other candidates that were running and And I'm like, I feel like I've got my eye on the DNC pretty, you know.
1: Well, you're you're exactly right. That is still the situation. The election is next week. The election is Monday through Thursday will be held digitally next week. Now, no one knew this. And in fact, the DNC members didn't know this because it hadn't been communicated to them. And there's a couple of different folks who have staff capacity who could have communicated this to national members. To tell state parties and to tell the grassroots, it could have been communicated by the DNC Secretary's office, the DNC communication staff, or anyone in the Biden-Harris campaign staff at any point. But they kept word very locked down until this last minute, when they said just before uh, the election. Now they have candidates have three days to gather 40 signatures. They didn't say how they were supposed to be gathered online during the pandemic. The ballots will be sent out on Monday morning, and voting will end on Thursday. And it's widely expected that then Jamie Harrison will be will be will be elected by the four hundred forty seven voting DNC members. But a good number of them also had no idea who was running, and there is especially confusion around the sort of more activist base of the of the Democrats on Twitter, who are calling for Stacey Abrams to throw her hat in the ring and there has been no communication from the Democratic Party regarding whether or not she's indicated interest in being a candidate or whether or not the former gubernatorial candidate is even in the mix in any sense to be considered. It was sprung on uh, everyone this morning that in fact, Jamie Harrison is going, be the, is going to be tapped to be the next chair. He's moving up from his role currently as associate chair and he'll be in charge of uh, the, the, the the party's you know, multimillion dollar contracts. And he'll inherit these discussions about transparency and reforms and reducing corporate influence in the party. And on our homepage on uh, Sludge at readsludge.com, I'm up with a new article today that looks back at Jamie Harrison's former, uh, many former very large corporate lobbying
0: clients. So so let's talk about this, because um, if folks recall, soon after the DNC chair's race in which uh, Tom Perez won on the second ballot with votes that... uh, votes that abstained were not in the room i should say for the first ballot it wouldn't have happened if 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 those people had been in the room so it was basically what had happened was um you know there's a lobbying effort on all the sides and there were some people who didn't want to have to deal with saying they're supporting tom perez in the chairs race mm-hmm. so they said okay fine if he gets to the second ballot i'll i'll support tom perez so they stayed out of the room mm-hmm. uh and, and it was self-preservation and the vote was much, much, much closer. Uh, and so they decided to vote with Tom Perez in the second ballot. And in between those ballots, the, um, the ballot uh, names and the votes were not released, which was something that all sides had agreed on. So right. Keith Allison did not get that list of names so he could lobby in between the ballots because there were like hours between there were all these crazy speeches. It was, it was insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he wasn't able to get access to that. But you know who did? President Obama, Valerie Jarrett. So he started to make those calls to lobby some of the votes to switch for the second ballot. And then on the second ballot, Tom Perez won. Now, I bring this up because um, Jamie Harrison uh, ran for chair and uh, immediately after the win of Tom Perez, Tom Perez, in this press conference, which the videos are up on TYT, if anybody wants to find them from 2017, uh, he, he introduced... Keith Ellison was going to be his uh, deputy. Was that what it was? What, what was the vice? No, not no, his deputy deputy chair of the DNC an invented, you know, office. Right. And then weeks later, DNC members are hearing that Keith uh, that, that, that that's Keith Ellison's role, but they're not really talking. But Jamie Harrison suddenly has like an equivalent position and a seat in the office outside the chair's office, mm-hmm. even though he wasn't elected to do so. So he sort of took over this other role that maybe Keith Allison was supposed to have um, and, and, and taking over the leadership of the DNC, which which I find so interesting. So could you give us a little backstory on on that first off and then later on um, his 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 career background?
1: This is something that I'm so glad that you that you that you keep bringing up to people because the story of the 2017 chair election is very under known. And you've been great to focus on this from also from your, you know, from your experience in the room during while much of this was happening. But the 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 the, the, the first ballot was inconclusive between um, uh, between Perez and Ellison, neither took a majority. The second ballot was noted with several individuals who hadn't voted on the first coming in on the second to vote for Perez, many of them from the New York delegation and also notable switching from the Puerto Rico delegation. And in, in Sludge, we've, uh, we've, we've, we've surfaced some of the reporting that exists on that, including from the journalist Ryan Grimm's book, We've Got People, and other uh, uh, reporting like such as that of the American Prospect and David Dayan. There is... Uh, then the, the there's an establishment within the DNC that seeks to maintain its positions ahead of these very untransparent committees. And in turn, the committees are run by the chair and all power flows up to the chair as reformist uh, DNC members have told us on, on and off the record that the chair exerts a tremendous amount of responsibility and that it's not uh, of authority really. And that it's not, it doesn't follow the DNC as a private corporation doesn't follow traditional rules of good governance or of basic sorts of ethics and conflicts of interest policies, as we've talked about uh, before, Namiki, that uh, those kinds of basic things that you'd find in a public or private corporation are, are very much lacking. Jamie Harrison now, he emerges with, with support of a lot of state Democratic Party chairs because uh, because Harrison was the South Carolina Democratic Party chair and has been seen in his U.S. Senate run to demonstrate a commitment to investing in local organizing and down-ballot infrastructure. So he is coming with significant support from some of the more progressive reformers, some of the Bernie Sanders delegates, for example. He is coming into... He is, he is, he, I was checking Twitter earlier today, of course, and he was receiving some, uh, some you know, enthusiastic applause from a wide variety of progressive DNC members. But also he is known for being uh, a Perez ally, of course. And he comes to the party with this a, back, a strong background in, in the, the, the cor- kind of corporate lobbying that's still heavily represented and overrepresented on DNC committees. Uh, as a lobbyist with a Podesta group, Harrison lobbied for the big banks, big oil companies, and even for uh, the uh, the American coal industry. Some of the details are on uh, slug right now, and I can dive into some of that uh, some of that history as well. But the the DNC continues to vote down measures that would reduce corporate influence within the party. Some of those have been happening for the past couple of years where Tom Perez rejected calls to reduce the influence of fossil fuel uh, donors in the party. And as well this summer, when the delegation when the delegates who are part of the national convention voted against stronger ethics policies in a very rushed sort of typical DNC virtual meeting that happened
0: so exactly and that's what That's so crazy to me though I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: I
0: I've never heard of any democratic organization like where where people are are elected to those positions by their constituencies ever voting down ethics unless it's the DNC in which the people who have oversight over that are appointed. That's correct. (laughs) In which it would crack down. It's like the whole thing about campaign finance reform. A lot of congressmen and women don't want to, you know, don't want to deal with it because it goes against their bottom line. So...
1: I, that's that's exactly right, and and those those proposals now will be faced by Jamie Harrison. The calls for reform are growing. Uh, of course, you know the 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 you know the one metric that we were able to analyze is the the rise from twenty nine signers of a pro reform letter to thirty seven, and that's pretty significant. That's ten percent of the elected DNC members, not the total voting, but ten percent of the elected ones as a sort of a, as a larger subset. They'll be bringing these concerns over uh, empowering the grassroots and the state parties to Jamie Harrison. And there are expectations that he'll be receptive to the discussions, but he also has been appointed by the Biden and Harris political operation. And he comes with close ties to the establishment including committee chairs like Jim Roosevelt that have been very untransparent in their dealings and have also shown Like a a real interest in, in preserving the status quo and in not releasing basic information about how the DNC operates, even who's on it or how members can get in touch with each other to, you know, to discuss this. Because after all, the 447 members who will be voting on Monday are not public. That information is not officially released right. publicly by the party it's not
0: officially released publicly right. but people have access to it um just a reminder to folks jim roosevelt is the uh if you remember the alex morse situation in which there was a manufactured uh you know set of of smears against alex morse uh in massachusetts jim roosevelt is the grandchild i believe a great grandchild uh, no grandchild of grandchild. fdr yeah. And he used to work on behalf of social security, had this kind of like amazing history, and then became the DNC like rule uh, <laughs> he, he he's got a reputation for being like the the person who blocks everybody and understands the rules more than anybody else. And I sat on the rules committee of the Unity Reform Commission with him, which is real fun. Um, but he he was behind when all of those, those stories broke about how he was working with the young Dems in Massachusetts to, to create this smear, he was behind that. So for, for, if you guys remember that name.
1: That's right. And in addition, to, to look briefly back at other, some other of Harrison's lobbying clients, with the Podesta Group, uh, they included the, the drug maker Merck, which under the Obama administration was hit with like billions of dollars in lawsuits and penalties for misleading marketing. He worked for Wells Fargo and Bank... He lobb- I'm sorry, he lobbied. Uh, Jamie Harrison lobbied for, uh, with Podesta Group for... Uh, Bank of America and Wells Fargo, while both of these giants were hit with huge um, criminal penalties as well. And during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill of 2012, which, of course, sent uh, unfathomable amounts of oil into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, Jamie Harrison had been also during his, corporate, during his career as a corporate lobbyist had VP America as a client. And there was a, a group called the American Coalition for Clean Coal Energy, electricity, rather, ACCCE, listeners might hear that and say, right, I thought there was not such a thing as clean coal. And that's because climate scientists and environmental groups like 350 agree there is no such thing as clean coal electricity. It's industry propaganda. But Jamie Harrison, during his time as a lobbyist, lobbied the House Democratic Caucus and also uh, Representative James Clyburn, with whom he is close. He lobbied on behalf of this coalition of American coal companies, while the Obama administration, was moving to try to enforce stronger uh, climate regulations. They were looking to undermine that through lobbying and communications. So he was, in a way, working against the environmental goals of the Obama administration. Now, of course, news reports say that that, uh, that, uh, Jamie Harrison's closeness with Representative Clyburn was part of what helped propel him to the nod from Biden to be the DNC chair.
0: What I don't understand about this Mm -hmm. is people looked past all I mean not everybody, but a lot of folks in the movement look past Jamie Harrison's background when he ran for, for for Senate against Lindsey Graham. He has built, rebuilt his reputation, rebranded himself, I should say, as being a more or less, you know, Democratic Party hero, raising a ton of money, running a very good campaign despite the odds, um, coming out looking great. Why on earth? would he wanna be DNC chair, which is a thankless position, which pretty much everybody hates the DNC chair from every aspect. It's mm-hmm. pretty much a hack position because you're just representing all of the, the lobbyist interests. I mean, the only thing that sticks out to me is he just is really good at that game because that's where he comes from. But I, in my mind, I'm like, why wouldn't you lobby for something in, in the administration? An appointment? Why wouldn't you run for Congress in one of these districts? I, 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 I don't understand the logic behind this. I feel like it's just on a professional level, a really bad career move for him.
1: I, you know, I can speak to what's known about the, about the chair's position. Uh, in addition to controlling the, 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 the this cycle from, 20, from 2019 through 2020, the DNC raised and spent around $445 million as an approximate figure. That's a significant amount. And the party chair has a high degree of authority over that over that budget, including setting contracts with favored vendors and with law firms like Perkins Coe that reach million, multi-million dollar lucrative contacts. In addition, I've seen it reported that the chair's compensation package is quite generous, and this is in, the, in the, the you know I believe the ballpark that I saw was around two hundred fifty thousand dollars at least, but I, that could be a that could be a floor. Um, and the if you think about how often you see uh, if Tom Perez on MSNBC, there's quite a bump in visibility that's quite beneficial to a future uh, whatever Mr. Harrison's next steps could be. Um, but for right now. Reformers and um, more establishment sort of party figures alike are welcoming Jamie Harrison's um, like the announcement of what was likely what was expected, and you know what um, where where the indications were that he is that he is the Biden Harris pick to lead the party for the next several years um, with uh, you know strong relation in part his strong background in fundraising from his Senate campaign in which he raised. Um, record amounts of money of but That
0: wasn't like, okay, that wasn't like a genius. It wasn't like, oh, I'm a master fundraiser. I mean, sure, he absolutely did call time as every candidate does and he probably had deep relationships, but he was running against a figure that was that was a target um, and and just like Amy McGrath. I don't think Amy McGrath went in there with like, this like mastery of fundraising. She just ran against and had the establishment's backing running against Mitch McConnell. So, I mean, I, I hear you on that Um, it's not like South Carolina is this democratic state. It's not like he, he, you know, if somebody ran and I understand why people are saying Stacey Abrams, but, you know, in all honesty, I I'm of the belief that the party needs to be run by somebody who understands the mechanics of the party. And I do think Jamie Harrison does understand the mechanics of the party the wrong way, Um I don't think that's something that Stacey Abrams comes with. And and I feel, you know, someone like a Ray Buckley, I mean, there are a lot of people who really understand the the kind of makeup of the party and have led state parties that have done good or are transparent. I say Ray Buckley because New Hampshire has an extremely democratic process, is very transparent. Um, and he was one of he was on the executive committee for years, and he was one of the people who who first kind of talked about the budget not being known by even the people who are supposed to like make decisions over the budget, but they never were, they just like go to events around the country. <laughs>
1: and, 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 and for that Buckley was removed from his committee position by Tom Perez in October of 2017.
0: Key point, key point. Yeah. So, um, you know, before we wrap up, I mean, w- 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 is there any signal from some DNC members as to where this could take the party?
1: We'll keep reporting on that on Sledge, but I haven't right now. The, the since the the announcement of brand new today, there's a lot of w- sort of welcoming and a, a, a general sort of uh, sense of uh, enthusiasm among among the 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 progressive party leaders on Twitter. A quick scan sort of suggests that there's. Laying the groundwork for a collaborative relationship. And the pro reform members who I spoke with for our sludge coverage emphasized that they're interested in a really, they're genuinely interested in a productive dialogue. They're interested in doing things like reducing the influence of at large members and being able to evaluate the, the efficacy of the party's budget. And these are, these are measures that they think will strengthen the party and put it in a better position to compete down ballot. A lot of states underperformed in the 2020 election at down ballot. Congressional seats down to state legislative seats in more local races compared to how Biden did nationally and they 're interested in in getting at that. One member told me they 're interested in like a, a i won 't say a mini autopsy report, but i 'll say a sort of a, a, a smaller scale look at where the the uh, you know the, the what the shortcomings were of the 2020 um, election in states like North carolina where the where the the, the member was from. And so with South Carolina as well there's um, there was expectations that with the amount of money that Harrison raised that uh, perhaps the race would have been decided by a closer margin it wasn't. Now looking ahead, I think the the reformers have asked for a meeting by the end of March to be able to begin discussing some of the continued uh, process since they haven't heard back yet and we're you know we'll be through inauguration for another week. I'm not sure if uh, Mr. Harrison's going to be able to take that up, but I know that there's now a larger group of pro reform DNC members who will be pushing for a response and some of their names and states are published on uh, open on an open public letter that's included in our sludge coverage folks can visit readsludge.com and find those names um, and some of the other um, there's you know if if you find the person you know who's most active on progressive Twitter uh, that person will be able to, to, to be able to point you to the accounts of, uh, of, of some of the other members who are. Are welcoming uh, Jamie Harrison's n- nomination now.
0: I'll just close with my personal take here. Um, the autopsies have been done. Uh, I, you know, if if if, if you're a, a DNC member who comes from a state, I would urge your state party to do an autopsy, not expect it from the national, because these have been things have been. I say the autopsies have been done before. 2020, the commission, the Unity Reform Commission was essentially the autopsy. The, the, the problems have not changed. It's not, these are the same problems that happened in 2006 after Howard Dean uh, was no longer at the DNC, after we lost 1,200 seats. The Democrats have had the same issues. It's not like, it's not gonna always point back to the same problems and that there are, there are people who have a vested interest in raising all this money and dispersing it the wrong ways, that don't win at the local level, and those people happen. Some of those people happen to be actual voting members of the DNC, despite having never been elected, and they have oversight. They've been appointed to all of the oversight committees, in which they oversee budgets, they oversee rules, they oversee, and so that's why the whole banning of conflicts of interest, which I'm so happy David has talked about, um, is is integral. You know, with that being said, I mean, that's why I said, like, I know there are a lot of new people in the DNC, which is wonderful, but don't make the same, you know, why, why reinvent the wheel when the wheel has already been invented six times over? When it comes down to get rid, getting rid of conflicts of interest, having a transparent budget with oversight, and also not expecting the DNC chair to be your friend. I mean, I like Jamie Harrison. I think he's a nice guy when uh, certain members of the Unity Reform Commission were getting harassed with, um, thousands of, of troll armies that were definitely paid vote for. Um, and when I personally received a death threat as a result, uh, in a hotel room, I immediately called up Jamie Harrison, who I knew was working at the DNC. And I said, you know, it takes me two seconds to figure out where this is coming from. And I'm pretty sure we know where it's coming from. This is what's happening. And I got a death threat and I swear to God, within five minutes it stopped. Thousands of tweets just stopped. Like there was a button that was pressed. He was horrified. He said that he's experienced similar things. And so I do think he has more empathy and his, his, like his barrier, like there's things that are off limits. And so I do really appreciate that about him. Um, But my concern is, you know, the democratic party has to fight fascism right now, even when with the democratic president, and that's not going to happen with a bunch of ads (laughs) So that's my editorialization. Uh, David, you do the reporting, the, the great reporting. Uh, I'm no longer on that beat, so I can now give, <laughs> throw out my opinions. But David more final thoughts, anything before we wrap up?
1: Uh, no, that uh, folks can check out more of our uh, coverage of the DNC, including we're the first site to put out the information of who these committee members are and their conflicts of interest with big corporate clients. This information that hadn't been publicly reported, and that's part of our uh, sludge investigative series at Readsludge.com, which they can find under the DNC tag.
0: Go check out Readsludge.com. Great reporting, David. Always a pleasure. Let's have you back on soon to discuss more DNC drama. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much. We'll be right back with Arun Chowdhury and Rep Rab from Pennsylvania. Stick around. It's Thursday. You know what that means. It means Rep. Rab, live from Pennsylvania, Representative Chris Rab is repping the twenty two hundredth. excuse me, I should know this by now, District of Pennsylvania. He is in Northwest Philly. Thank you for delivering us a Democratic president. Just always want to give you the shout out because you've been doing the hard organizing there for years, which turned out uh, in Pennsylvania, winning us Pennsylvania. And we have Political filmmaker live from Berlin in the late nights. Uh, Arun Chowdhury, he's the former, former first official White House videographer under the Obama administration, and he was the creative director for Bernie Sanders in 2016. Um, also, you were our political like consultants on our campaign. Just full disclosure, That's right? <laughs>
2: uh, actually, I'm coming to you live from Pristina, Kosovo tonight, oh, right. where there's uh, snap elections happening next month. So we are all getting ready. To undo some of Trump's wrongdoing overseas,
0: uh, meaning the rise of fascism overseas, just to yeah, be
2: and direct, directly organizing a coup in the middle of the coronavirus in this beautiful Balkan
1: nation.
0: <laughs> in this beautiful Balkan nation. All right, I want to start off real quick because uh, before we came out on, I, I got news that Pennsylvania is the, the legislature is not going to be in session uh, in the lead up to the inauguration out of fear of another insurrection. Uh, could you give us a quick update on that, Rip Rab?
3: Yeah. Um I, I got a very ominous email saying uh keep your ass at home. <laughs> uh <laughs> it it
0: not funny, but yeah, I they mean make it
3: funny. Yeah. Mean, it, it, hey, look, it, we we gotta keep our wits and we gotta keep our sense of humor even uh amidst all this darkness. Um but no, it is very serious. They did not go into any detail whatsoever, but they are deeply concerned. I just finished our first legislative week of the new term um, yesterday, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're in. Hardcore um, security. Everything on lockdown. No cars that are not associated with members and essential staff were allowed. No, no one from the general public. Uh, no lobbyists, nothing. I mean, no lobbyists really since the pandemic. So, But they just shut it down. It was hardcore, hardcore so, you know, I felt nervous and safe at the same time, right? Safe that no one was going to sneak in, but, but um, nervous because, you know, I, I, who likes to work around folks carrying, you know, hardcore, you know, uh, military gear? Um, and frankly, as a black man, I'm concerned how many people uh, in this police force, in this law enforcement agency, um, are sympathetic to insurrectionists. We just had a a Philadelphia uh, detective who got caught up in the insurrection. Um, And she got, you know, her name is all over the papers. Um, And here's something that is related to all of this. After the peaceful protests following the the killings of of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, you know, a bunch of us stormed the, the House floor in a, peaceful manner, right? We weren't breaking stuff. You know, we were members. You're a member.
0: So let's start with that, without a gun.
3: That's right. With that, no, no guns, nonviolent. And we, we demanded legislative action. 36 days later, we got two, um, and ultimately three democratic, um, measures enacted into state law, which was huge. It wouldn't have happened without all the people on the streets, but here's the thing right before it became a law, there was a loophole put in my bill that I could, I could not undo that was inspired by the FOP. That loophole will allow this insurrectionist, fascist, white supremacist, QAnon, whatever her business is, to get another job in law enforcement if she quits before she fi- is fired. So if she says, you know what, this is getting real bad. I'm gonna quit. She can just kind of go lay low for a while and apply for another job job in law enforcement and she can be hired without the scrutiny of the public because of this loophole in the law that was based on a bill that I introduced. And so this hits us not just in DC, this hits us not just in our state capitals, this hits us at home because we are essentially uh, being policed by folks who may include amongst them anti-democratic, thereby you know, fascist, white supremacists, anti-Semites, xenophobes and such. And here's the greatest irony. Yesterday morning, I was in a Judiciary Committee hearing and I was sitting next to the founding chair of the Law Enforcement Caucus. He's a former police officer. And he was not supportive of, of the Movement for Black Lives, to say the very least. So as we were adjourning, I said to him, I said, Hey man, when can I expect a public uh statement condemning the violence and the insurrection in DC? He says, What are you talking about? I said, Well, what? there was a white mob that beat the crap out of a white police officer with an American flag. Wow. This is why What are I- you talking about? He says, He's yeah. He said, I said, So when is that statement coming out? He goes, I hadn't really thought about it. And I said, he got beaten with an american flag and he was a law enforcement officer being beaten up by vigi- by vigilantes and he just walked away so this whole blue lives matter thing is really kind of on uh it's it's we knew it was bs in the beginning right but this puts a point on it that if it's not in service of what they want for their own narrow deeply problematic reasons, it's just the slogan. It doesn't mean anything. And the folks who are, were the most opposed to looting and protest and all these other things that related to Black folk and related to racial justice more broadly and police, opposing police terror, who were so uh, up in arms, are silent. And silence is indeed complicit, right, is complicity. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm really happy you bring that up Because uh, before we we, we go to your run I would love to hear your response Um, One thing that's happening right now alternatively to the silence, the, 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 enablers. I mean, it's even happening on the left folks who are not discussing this or who didn't talk about it the day of, I mean, it's, it's very strange. You start to learn a lot about people through their silence, but simultaneously you're seeing in communities across America, people step up and say, I recognize that person from that video, whether it's colleagues, uh, whether it's the former uh, Olympians who recognize that Olympian who was there or family members. And, and we're just going to roll a quick video because this was, um this is, I, I, I feel like this is, this sh- should be a bigger story because it takes so much to do this. Uh, let's play that clip. So take a look at that woman. That's important for the context. All right. So the background here is that a a, a teenager, the daughter of that woman, uh, had turned in her her mother, who is that woman in that photo, and I believe her uncle the white was woman. there. The white woman who had blood on her face. Um, calling them out and and she did an interview recently i believe uh with me so we can't play it unfortunately because we'll get dinged but um she did an interview about this because she had tweeted something out saying you know essentially i'm going to report you uh that's my mother that's my uncle i'm going to report you to the fbi fbi pay attention or something like this is my mom she shouldn't be doing this mm-hmm. and then people didn't believe her and she showed all these photos with her and her mom and saying well, that's her that's her uh i don't know if we have the tweet for that but um i mean this i think is is, is such a powerful there, there's, there's the photo she tweeted out of her mom uh, when folks said that she didn't believe. Can we move it up just a little bit so we can see it? What fully? did she do? No, no, move it up. Not, 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 not. Yeah. So, what did her mother do?
3: Yeah, do I saw her getting hit. I assume that she uh, provoked the woman who hit her in some way. If she hit hers, or maybe I'm not sure not what
0: the prov- provocation was, but I think that the what provoked it. I think what is concern is is the feds are asking for folks to identify anybody who attended these violent whether they had guns or not or stole podiums or not mm-hmm. they're asking folks to identify them and she was there supporting trump and i believe it was a lawmaker uh you know as a person of color if we look at that or not excuse me not lawmaker, law enforcement Excuse right. me, um, who who pushed her so you know i don't know if the stories is it, the question is it's these kids, I mean this is this is really kind of powerful that a child in the family is turning in their own family members.
2: Yeah, it's slightly unsavory, right? like yeah it, it, yeah. I mean right, I, I think in general. Uh, we're seeing kind of the, the double-edged sword come out here, which is that we've seen some egregious crimes committed and we want to see them prosecuted. We've seen some of our members of Congress be extremely unsafe in some what seemed like systematic ways. And we want that to be prosecuted. But what I'm already seeing of the Patriot Act II, you know, <laughs> like a sister act two back in the habit is a sequel that is ill-conceived and forced out the door. Uh, and, and, you know, the idea of identifying through face recognition and whatever and just people talking about everyone at a protest would make me incredibly nervous if it was a protest for health care that maybe had had some friction with police or something. I mean, who knows? Who knows why people want uh, are going to want to protest for? And so I just hope uh, in our rush in the next few days and months as we're going through impeachment, and all these things, we don't put together some slapdash legislation that really curtails our civil rights even more than they already are for the benefit of people who are going to make the new cameras that every police department will use to film at the protests. You know, like Raytheon, whoever this is, is going to make that camera is going to make a bundle. But let's just make sure we're actually being safe in a smart and socially conscious way.
0: Do they need new cameras? I mean, it already exists. I mean, we already have this. That's what I understand. It's like, how could you get more? I mean...
2: (laughs) Just because you got to spend money on something when you pass a bill, that's going to be, right. uh, look, Rev Rob will tell you all
3: about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. Any excuse to, to, to provide more procurement opportunities for large corporations to surveil us, I mean, that's just a dream come true. And it, it is a reflex that we have to catch ourselves on, even those of us um, who are more progressive-minded. We want to get these folks Because we want to prove our point that there are white supremacists in every aspect of society and say, we told you we got them. We need to get them. We need to crucify these bastards or whatever terminology we use. But then we are saying, but are we playing into this carceral mentality where the carceral state is what wins? And listen, we we weaponize, we radicalize people in the carceral state. Right. We uh, inside, I visited seven state prisons in my time in office over the past four years. Um, it's deeply segregated. It's probably more segregated than in society itself, which is really hard to beat in, in most places in this country. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does success look like? And look, I am not kind of a turn the other cheek type of dude. I'm just not. Right. I, I, I believe a lot of these a lot of these people are beyond redemption. A lot of them, but not all of them. But how are we going to redeem society itself? And it's not going to be through massive surveillance and through um, over-incarceration. Even the folks who I consider the bad guys, we have to think more deeply. And so, Run's point about um, uh, kind of uh, further equipping um, kind of uh, Big Brother with these things can definitely work. Uh, uh, can be very counter. Uh, productive, because when the, mo- when the pendulum swings back, and it always does, we're gonna be the one caught up in this stuff by something that we created. And you can look at the 1994 crime bill. You can look at hate crimes uh, laws where the people who are actually uh, uh, convicted are black and brown people more than white people because they use these laws against the folks who meant to, to address um, racism. So we, have to, we do have to be very careful. But at the same time, I believe that um, like I have, I have an issue with the Confederate flag. I think we all should have issues with the Confederate flag and, and what it means. I, I'm big on the First Amendment, but how do we process folks holding up? I mean, they, they were traitors, right? This, we're talking about treasonous stuff here. So we got to continue having this conversation. It's not cut, in, cut and dry. And without having these meaningful conversations about our um, First Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights, et cetera, et cetera, then we could actually be playing into the very things that have hurt us in communities of struggle for generations.
0: Uh, that old line, "Never let a good crisis go to waste." That uh, is is you know, this is a crisis where we should be focusing our attention on the on specifically. I think there's a moment where we have an opportunity to to address the root causes. Uh, you know, as you said that, I'm I'm really glad that you brought that up, Rip Brad? Because one of our our listeners, Buckaroo Samurai, <laughs> uh, says, "Don't recall the FBI or police needing terrorism laws or high tech equipment." to violently put down the Black Panthers or leftist groups in the 70, 60s and 70s. I'll add that part. Um, you know, I mean, but there's there's a way to monetize it now. It's like it's one thing to do. it; It's nothing to, like, make money on the side doing it. So, I mean, with that being said, and, and I, I'm really glad that the conversation has gone this direction. Um, our friend uh, Bronco Marchetic wrote for In These Times. He argues that it's time to placate Biden and work with him to make things go smoothly. It's time for the left or excuse me, it is in time. I can't believe I said that. It's time for the left to raise hell to make sure that we get uh, what we want, which is, is material supports to make life better in America right now. And this is a great piece you should go check out if, if you can in, in these times. Um, and that's sort of what we led with at the top of this show, which is, you know, we've gone through impeachment. We should definitely put them through a trial, but not let that distract away from the the, the existential crisis that most Americans are facing right now, whether they're about to get evicted or with their eviction comes tens of thousands, maybe even worse, uh, dollars in past rent. Not to mention the medical costs that, you know, m- maybe we can't get Medicare for all right now, but let's eliminate the medical debt that people have inqu- have, have acquired because of, of, of what happened with COVID, whether it's covid directly or related to COVID, Uh, student loan debt. I mean, how can we possibly get out of this if people are, are unable to survive because the first part of their income goes to student loans? if they didn't graduate college. So, you know, I think this is a really important piece because we can't lose sight of what is the most important thing for most Americans right now. And we might have allies, strange bedfellows in these places. I'd mentioned rent relief. You know, real estate companies have a vested interest in having renters come in. So it's a weird ally, but we might be able to work with them. Chuck Schumer... Seems to think we can eliminate a, a larger portion of student debt, uh, strengthen the stimulus. I mean, if, if the banker-in-chief uh, in our Senate says that, maybe there's a little bit of leeway right now. Maybe, maybe they got a memo that we didn't get. Right. Iran, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that?
2: I think we're a week late. I think January 7th was the day to start doing it because Georgia was a hell of a good excuse. Yeah. You know, don't mess up our hair. We're trying to do this thing, man. You know, okay, I get it. But now the thing is done. There's mathematically not a better time uh, than now. We're already seeing the results of not doing that. Like they're already, the Biden administration is already indicating they're going to do the least amount possible. I don't think necessarily out of malice, but just out of they're trying to get a even you know, placate the right, placate the re- left, but we're hearing about $1,400 checks now, right? Not hearing about $2,000 dated back. We're hearing about the sort of very least we can do for people, not, the, not, not what's going to make them whole. So uh, I think it's the right thing to do uh, morally because if you need this. I think it's the right thing to do politically. Some good old democracy and stream of party two is already written in stone and that is to
0: house. just so you know we're, we, we lost a little bit of what you last said but I think we got a good sense of it um I think your wi-fi is cutting out but with what that I'm I agree
3: with 100 just so you know <laughs> everything you said I co I mean politically and also economically look uh, where, where where are folks spending this money they're spending it in mm. local businesses um you know, they're, this this is money that will recirculate in in, um, in local communities. It just makes sense. And and look, we can't be surprised because Biden ran as Biden, right? I mean, that, it's, that's on us. It's our fault if we expect anything more of him. Mm. But there's a the difference between expecting more of him and demanding that's right. more of him. And we must do the latter. We'd be silly if we did the former. That's so right. we have to do this. And it, it's not obstructionist. It's not... Um, cannibalistic, oh, why can't Democrats get together? No. There are people in Congress who are there uh, to, who have expressed their commitment to progressive values that transcend their party affiliation. I'm one of those people uh, in, in Pennsylvania who who, ascribes to, who is committed to my values more than anything else, particularly as it relates to communities I, I care about most, beyond, including and beyond my constituents. And that's really important because that is our moral responsibility collectively to push our nation forward, right? Because I believe if, you know, this left-right thing, it can get a little confusing, but we believe as progressives that we want to move the country forward and not regress, right? And not go back to the bad old days, right, Of, of even greater Uh, structural inequalities as codified in law so we can do that but we have to raise our voices and it's not to say um, it's our way or the highway it's to push them and say this is why you should embrace these policies it is in line with your spouse values and it's in line with just good policy to help those most in need and i gotta say too I hear a lot of talk now from mainstream white politicians about racial justice and racial equity and such. If it doesn't meaningfully address the racial wealth gap, they're full of shit. Right. And listen, you're not going to raise even raising the minimum wage tomorrow to $15 an hour does nothing to address the racial wealth gap. There's a difference between income inequality and wealth inequality. And for all the women who are watching, you all have 5% of the financial wealth on on the planet. 5%. It should be 10 times as much or more. This is structural. So if we don't have meaningful policies that address systemic issues that allow for these disparities to continue, then we are part of the problem. And our silence, our inability to organize and to push the Biden administration in the right direction, that's on us.
0: And if not now, when? I mean, this is where we actually might have the political will of not just the neoliberals, but even some conservatives. Like I said, when when the real estate industry is suddenly like, whoa, whoa, whoa hang on a second, like people aren't going to be renting my apartments, we got to figure this out real fast. Um, it, it goes so far that it affects even their bottom line because they're thinking quarterly. But we're we're way past quarterly at this point in terms of crises. Arun, uh, your Wi fis is a little up, but let's. Uh, do you have any thoughts to see if we can get you in there before we wrap up? I
2: agree. You know now don't want we have loaf as Bernie's one crumbs. Uh, but I actually uh, do think you can dig the people like Schumer. They are some of the pressures into and 2024 and the primary, the democratic race, And I think that just, you know, the folks like justice sunrise movement, higher political for this kind of equivalent because we see people's, their potential primary more than we used to and that's
0: oh, we're losing you uh just to summarize what he said <laughs> If I can say it, he's saying this is why it's important to to pressure the Pelosi's and the Schumer's, and especially have the threats. If I'm if I heard right, the threats from outside groups like Justice Democrats and Sunrise, which you know they do feel the pressure from, especially uh, you know Schumer in New York. Uh, he's he's got a AOC you know at his at his ankles, or anybody else. I mean, it doesn't even have to be O.C. Who be any progressive who can build the coalition? Um, you know, they're all afraid of of primaries because they've got a lot of work in controlling, especially if they're in leadership and control controlling Congress and raising the money. And and uh, it's a lot of work right now for them. So, you know, they don't need primaries because they don't want to have to raise to, to protect themselves and they don't want to have to fight uh, off challengers. So, you know, that's why they feel the heat. Uh, last, last thoughts, Rep. Rab.
3: Well, I'm just really impressed that I only heard 23% of what runs said, <laughs> and it's still brilliant, you know? Like, <laughs> that's really impressive to me. <laughs> so, um, I, I, you know, I love being in such good company. You know, you've you, you curated just a wonderful group of folks. Um, Thank And you hats me. off to you. And I really You're appreciate right. this opportunity, particularly, you know, having these discussions outside of corporate media. You know, mm. so often those of us in elective office are asked to speak on the networks and local news and such. And people forget that uh, media in this country in particular is an extension of corporate America. Mm -hmm. And so any meaningful critique of capitalism or systems of oppression are pushed to the margins at best. And so here's an opportunity we have to speak um, freely and and meaningfully in ways that um, too few um, either do or can. And uh, so I, I, I want to thank you for for creating this platform and and working in in, uh, in good faith with other folks who are seeking to do the same thing.
0: Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. and for you joining us. I mean, it's it's a growing space. Um, it's important, I think. I mean, this is this is it's important to have a counter opinion. I think this is the moment where we can really break through and and pull in folks that. Uh, may have been more loyal to the Democratic establishment because there's this crisis of the moment. Uh, they they too see what you're seeing in corporate media, and we've we've been getting messages from folks saying, you know, I I, I felt like they're out of touch. I went online, I was shared a clip, etc. And um, that's really important. That's super important to have another space that uh, that that offers a different message, uh, and a different path, and different pressure points. So thank you, Rep. rab. Thank you, Run Chowdhury, who's uh coming in from Kosovo. <laughs> just just hanging out. Just 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 advising people who are challenging fascists. That's just what he does, you know, on a day-to-day basis, man, what a life. All right, everybody. uh, We are just going to wrap up this panel. I'm going to do a a couple of uh, a little bit of business before we wrap up. Thank you, Rep. Rab. We'll see you next week. And just for everybody, so you know, Tuesday, or excuse me, Wednesday uh, of next week is January 20th. That is Inauguration Day. We are going to be doing a special inauguration show. It's going to be two hours long. Uh, we're going to have great guests, great panelists. We're going to cover what happened at the inauguration. Of course, we're not going to be at the inauguration because of COVID and you shouldn't be there either. Let's just throw that out there. Uh, I, we will talk a little bit about what happened at past inaugurations. I went to my first inauguration in 1997. I was 13 years old. My dad took me. It was freezing cold. I'm not sure which was colder, Barack Obama's inauguration or that one, but I have photos from both in which we were wrapped in blankets and scarves, and all you could see was my eyes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> we don't have to do that this year. Even if it's expected to be a little bit warmer. So definitely check out the show. Same time, three o'clock Eastern, but go into five o'clock for the special inauguration show. And if you are not already, please join us for our book club. We are in the midst of reading Harvey K's Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. He is doing two Two conversations with us, one overview at the beginning, which is already up there. And the second is with Q&As, answering questions from our book club members. If you're a book club member, please email us at keyshow at gmail.com with your questions. We will make sure uh, to, 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 to send those questions to Harvey so he has them in advance. And you can join our book club the Nomi Key show, excuse me, patreon.com slash the Nomi key show. There are three levels, one book a month, two books a month, or four books a month. And our next book is The Plunket of Tammany Hall in which our previous guest Arun Chowdhury recommended we read it. It is a quick read. It is a great read. It talks a lot about the machinations of politics. You definitely wanna join the book club. We're already in the midst of it. It's so much fun. All right, let's give some super chat love out. Fun police, thank you so much. Love the glasses. (laughs) Love you questioning helper. That was a fun interview. Yeah, it was. Uh, The glasses are old. People have been asking about the glasses. I lost my other glasses uh, and I couldn't find them. I tend to lose, I have a lot of glasses tend to lose them all at once. I'm not really sure why. This has happened multiple times where I'll just lose like three pairs at once. I also need to update my, my prescription. So uh, these also hurt my eyes. They're not going to last long. I'll just tell you that. Al Walski, thank you for the love. Independent, in, in, independent sponsored fuel for independent media. Got it. Sue's saying, give give if you can, when you can, what you can for a good cause. Independent sponsored fuel, meaning independent people sponsoring our show. Thank you so much, Al Walski. Patrick Emmerich, just drank my afternoon coffee with my wife from a surprise Nomi Show mug that you got in the mail. Thanks. I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, You too can get a Nomi Show mug or tote or sticker either by becoming, I guess, one of the patron levels. I can't remember off the top of my head. Or you can go to uh, the dot com, I believe. I'll, we'll put it in the in the link below, and that's where we sell them. If you guys want to get some swag, it's supposed to be for live events, but those are canceled for the uh, the future. So you know, maybe we'll have some fun stuff in the next you know once we're able to meet in person again. And uh, solar panels on the White House, twenty twenty one. Thank you for the love, Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska. Always, 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 always so kind. Says I'm free of the shadow band now. Good. Some fishy stuff happening. Thank you to our the author of Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, Harvey K, for joining the chat and mixing it up. Thank you to Midi Docs for working the algorithms as usual. You're always doing it so well. Huge, huge thanks to our moderators Bob, Chokin, the Orb, and Chuck Diesel. DM Dorsey, we need your addresses. Midi Docs, DM Dorsey, we need your addresses so we can send you some goods. That's what we want to do. And Mario Quaid for filling in while Midi Docs was shadow banned today. I don't really understand how this works. I need to understand the shadow ban and why it happens a little bit more. So thank you, Mario, for filling in. And uh, email us your info at at gmail.com. We need the information because we want to send you some gifts. Much love. We will see you tomorrow. Stay well. Be well. Solidarity. See you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern.